0: Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. Our third season starts with three interviews where we discuss the making of one of the most revered New Hollywood classics, Roman Polanski's Chinatown. Originally released in 1974 and now considered to be one of the best American movies of all time. Today's episode features my conversation with Hawk Koch, who worked on Chinatown as an assistant director and had previously worked with Polanski as a dialogue coach on Rosemary's Baby in 1968. Hawk Koch is the son of Hollywood producer Howard Koch, best known as the producer of The Manchurian Candidate and The Odd Couple. Originally known as Howard Koch Jr., Hawk worked as a road manager for The Supremes and the Dave Clark Five before he entered the film business as an assistant director during the New Hollywood era, working with legends like John Schlesinger on The Marathon Man, Sidney Pollack and Robert Redford on The Way We Were, Alan Pakula and Warren Beatty on The Parallax View, and, again with Beatty, Heaven Can Wait. Hawk later became a producer who was responsible for terrific films like Wayne's World, Sliver, Primal Fear, Keeping the Faith, and Source Code. Like his father in the late 70s, Hawk Koch served as the president of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences from 2012 to 2013. In our interview, Hawk remembers the shooting of Chinatown and working with Roman Polanski. He also has vivid memories of working on films like The Parallax View, Richard Rush's Getting Straight or Peter Fonda's The Hired Hand. We also discuss Hawk's wonderful Hollywood memoir Magic Time. If you want to know more about his adventures in Hollywood and learn more about the relationship with his famous father, make sure to read it as Hawk is a gifted storyteller. The Chinatown interviews were conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz. So if you speak German, please visit www.lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 56, which features an in-depth discussion of Polanski's film. Also, make sure to listen to Talking Pictures episodes number 20 and 21, in which I talk to Chinatown actor Alan Warnick and to editing expert Bobby Osteen, the wife of late Chinatown editor Sam Osteen. If you enjoy my conversation with Hawk Koch, please visit talkingpicturespodcast.com to check out our other interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is Hawk Koch remembering the changes brought along the new Hollywood movement.
1: Well, I had always been a, someone who loved foreign films and English films. So I was always looking for darker, more interesting material myself. And uh, I wasn't someone rushing out to see Dr. Doolittle. I was rushing out to see uh, In the Heat of the Night, or Bonnie and Clyde, which is, you know, 1967, 68, Patton. Uh, so I was kind of thrilled that the the kinds of films that I wanted to see were actually getting made more. People were more interested in, you know, I guess, uh, looking at what the French new wave had been in the in the 50s and early 60s. A lot of American directors were well, not exactly that, but they were looking at more interesting material. Think of Friedkin with *The French Connection*, you know, or obviously uh, uh, Coppola with *Godfather*, and and Robert Evans at Paramount, who was kind of a mentor to me. That uh, you know said yes to some films that nobody else was saying yes to. The conversation. Uh, so, it was exci- it was an exciting time, and we were. We were doing exciting films. I was lucky enough to be on a film called "The Parallax View" mm-hmm. uh, that Alan Pakula directed, which was kind of very dark if if uh, any of your fans out there have ever seen it. but it it opens with a kind of like a Warren commission saying that, you know this this assassination took place by one person. there was no nobody else, and yet we know watching it that there was a conspiracy and uh, then Warren Beatty as a as a, as a uh, journalist really goes down under all the way to the depths of of the kinds of people they find to uh, not really brainwash, I guess brainwash in some way, and finds himself in that same kind of a position where in fact there are conspirators who set him up and at the end of the movie he has assassin he it looks like he has assassinated a presidential candidate and he had nothing to do with it but in fact another warren commission says uh, uh, he, he acted alone and we know that you know this was you know just a few years after jfk rfk and martin luther king so uh you know not I was always, I never believed it was just one person. Anyway, I, I don't know if I got off on the wrong subject there for you. But. No,
0: no, absolutely. I actually have the parallax view on my notes um, ah. because that's a, a film that touches upon, like you said, something that was really an issue of the day. It's something that was really, I mean, that's basically coincidence that it came out around the time of the Watergate um, affair, but still um, it connects with that sort of zeitgeist where you sort of notice that you can't really trust um, the um, people who are in charge. I was wondering, did you discuss those issues, uh, with the people who were making the movies? Did you talk oh, yeah. about those? I mean, I, I
1: got to, I got to work with, I thought the best, best filmmakers of the day. I got to work with Robert Benton, who had, he and his partner had written Bonnie and Clyde. I got to work with Robert Town. I got to work with Alan Pakula and, <clears throat> and Sidney Pollack, um, Roman Polanski, you know, Rosemary's Baby. Um, so yeah, we discussed, always discussed uh, uh, social issues as well as uh, uh, democracy. Um, it was interesting that the only film f- shooting in Los Angeles at the time of, uh, of the Watergate hearings was The Parallax View because there was a writer strike going on but we had supposedly a finished script Uh, And so we were allowed to shoot the film, and yet we were rewriting every morning. (laughs) But, um, you know, and I'd get a call from, you know, someone said, hey, let's go to Marina Del Rey. We've got a scene there. and We'd get permits and take the crew and go shoot. It was wild. And when we were setting up, everybody had little TVs or radios, and we would listen to the Watergate hearings. It was quite a time. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I was also thinking of a film like Getting Straight, which talks about the student protests.
1: Yeah, I was, again, I was an assistant director on that one as well. Uh, And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, while we were filming Getting Straight is when the uh, Sharon Tate, Tate LaBianca, Charles Manson, murders were going on and I was working with Candace Bergen who had lived in the house where the where the murders took place on Cielo Drive
0: uh, okay Uh,
1: but also there was a great moment while shooting getting straight Um, Neil Armstrong uh, walked on the moon and I remember Elliot Gould and Candace Bergen and I leaving Eugene Oregon and driving about an hour to Florence, Oregon, which is on the beach and it's kind of sand dunes and kind of laid on the beach. We may have been smoking something. I don't know. (laughs) And uh, we looked up there and went, oh my God, there's someone walking up there. (laughs) That was quite a a moment for I'm sure anybody who was alive and aware in 1969. Mm -hmm. I guess
0: it must have been mind-blowing.
1: Yes, it was. And and doing the student protests in the, in the movie was kind of really easy to do. As an assistant director, I had to set up all the action behind the, the principal actors. And all, we did it at the University of Oregon. And everybody there knew what was going on everywhere. So it was, I said, you know, pretend you're at Kent State, you know, or, or whatever and uh it it was chilling but we were all young and we were we were filmmakers you know we we weren't worried about you know is somebody gonna you know fly as iron man or marvel it wasn't it was real stuff
0: Hmm. yeah which i guess is why we're still talking about those films um because they capture the, the era and the issues of the era so well. right um, I was curious you, you through your dad you got a, a little bit of a glimpse of the old Hollywood um, style of filmmaking, I guess when you visited the sets. And then as an assistant director you worked with a lot of young, Uh, filmmakers itself with Peter Fonda and you mentioned Robert Benton and Jim Bridges uh, people like those did you notice a difference in the approach of these um, how the production was handled how the filmmakers themselves handled the um, the the films
1: I'm not sure that I noticed the difference because when I worked with my dad was making b-movies in the 50s and that was just set it up and shoot set it up and shoot there wasn't a lot of in not my opinion, thought behind it. But when I did get to start to work with actually, you know, uh, Sidney Pollack, I guess, was the first major filmmaker I got to work with myself on a film called This Property is Condemned with Natalie Wood and a young actor named Robert Redford in his second movie. Uh, there was always discussion about the depth of what each scene was about and that's that's where I was, even, even though I was doing the craft of assistant directing, I was always interested in the, in the story. And uh, I think even today I have a grandson who's a film editor uh, and I'm always talking to him when he was going to university. I said, take English classes and to your, I don't know who listens to this, to this podcast, but learn how to tell a story. Whether you want to be a director, a producer, a cinematographer, an editor, a writer, if you know how to tell a story, that's that's how you're going to get ahead in the in the motion picture industry, mm-hmm. in the in the film industry.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, I keep going, swaying off subjects. I'm afraid. I'm a, sorry, no, no, That's, that's perfectly me.
0: okay. Um, <laughs> that's perfectly okay. Also, in terms of actors, you work with a lot of. Um, Newcomers and a lot of um, people who are established uh, veterans of the screen, people like Kirk Douglas or Robert Mitchum, um, and then you mentioned Robert Redford and and other newcomers like Elliot Gould. Um, again, was there a difference in how they approached their roles?
1: Uh, I think that the older actors. I mean, I, I just I remember working on a movie called The April Fool's, which was a comedy with Jack Lemmon and Catherine Deneuve. Oh my God, Mm. he's still my heart. We had all seen her in Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Repulsion, right? Uh, Two very different films. But in the cast was Myrna Loy and Charles Boyer of old Hollywood. And while Jack had a certain way that he worked, and Deneuve was kind of struggling with the American way of working. Myrna Loy and Charles Boyer were just old hands. They were just, tell me where you want me to be, I'll take, I'll do it, you know? But I mean, for any, again, your people out there, the thin man, I mean, Myrna Loy, Charles Boyer. Uh, And then I got to work with Mildred Natwick on, on Barefoot in the Park. Again, another old, old, uh, not a very good movie. In the late 70s, I got to work with Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy. I mean, some of the greats, if anybody ever saw The Gin Game, or you could probably still see it on YouTube somewhere. But they were kind of old pros, whereas the, the younger people, they still, they knew their craft the younger people, they just explored it and questioned more, I would say. They were more curious. And that's probably one of the things I always talk about. Again, I'm going off, but I I think that in order to be a good filmmaker, you must be curious. You must continue to ask questions and be curious about everything. The research that goes into you know, people say, geez, I've worked with Gordon Willis on four or five films. I mean, one of the greatest cinematographers ever. But he was always curious. He always had a plan. He always was prepared. And he helped prepare the directors and all the rest of us. Because he he knew how to research. He was curious. And he knew how to plan. It's the other thing. Be curious and know how to prepare.
0: hmm Yeah, I remember in in your book, um, Magic Time, which we'll talk about a a little bit later on, um, but I remember that you wrote um, how you, uh, how important it was for you to um, have everybody be prepared before a shoot um, so that, you know, you could uh, stay within the limits of the budget, for example.
1: Well, it just, I always compare it to uh, being a chef. If, oh, I'm going to make a meal. Well, the first thing I do is I'm gonna look at my menu, decide on what I'm going to make. Then I have to look at the recipes. Well, the recipes are, I gotta get the garlic, I gotta get the pasta, I gotta get the vegetables, I gotta get the meat, I gotta get, you know, and every single thing, all of, all, all of the stuff. That's preparation. Mm. When I go to the supermarket, if I'm not prepared with everything I want to do, I'm never going to get through it. <laughs> right? So if you're not prepared and you go to shoot, what you're going to end up with when you're making the meal, which is what I call editing, is a, a mishmash. Mm. And you're going to go, oh, I forgot that, Why well, I, I, did, I didn't remember that I needed the garlic, or I didn't remember I needed the so-and-so, and now you're got to go back to the market and you got to reshoot and you got you haven't thought enough about it which is why i always that's one of the things that uh that i learned was how to prepare and i think uh uh if you're prepared you have a much better chance of changing your mind of being of improvising of ad-libbing but if you know what the scope of everything is gonna be, then you're free to, to make minor changes here or there or a piece of magic happens that you hadn't thought of that you, oh, let's go there, let's, let's do this.
0: There's a, a German comedian, Dieter Halleforden, um, who said that um, preparation is the scaffolding on which you can improvise. Um, which uh, I think is um, exactly He's what no you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you, a lot of what I read about the films that were made during the New Hollywood era, though, um, I always got the impression that uh, a lot of it was improvised, a lot of it was sort of found. Um, I don't know if that's particularly true of all the films that you worked on, but when I read, like, Shooting easy movies like Easy Rider, or um, the way that Terrence Malick shot his movies, um, that there was a lot of improvisation, a lot of um, searching for something. In, in a
1: way, um, yeah, I, I think that I think you meant Malick and Dennis Hopper. I think were two absolute people who improvised. The films I worked on, uh, we were much more prepared. And uh, while we might have to rewrite something during the shoot or look for something that isn't coming, uh, it, it wasn't total ad-lib. Mm. Uh, the, directors, the directors I work with didn't say, oh, just, you know, the essence of the scene, go for it. Mm. That, that, that wasn't, uh, that, was, that was a few more people who were doing a little more stuff than, than the, <laughs> There was a lot going on there.
0: Mm. <laughs> what about the hired hand by by Peter Fonda? Because I mean, he's well, he was Dennis Hopper's buddy.
1: Yeah, well, that was that was very exciting to me. That I was that was one of the first movies I was a first AD on, and Peter was. Peter had an idea of what he wanted, and you know this, Ulysses returning home, uh, was a was a major major element uh and I got to work with Vilmos Zygmunt again one of the great cinematographers but he had just come under you know he had just gotten out of Hungary and was you know a friend of Laszlo Kovacs and Laszlo had shot Easy Rider and he wasn't available so Laszlo had suggested Vilmos and Vilmos was a shooter where do you want it Peter I'll get it there and Peter was Peter wasn't a director. Director, he was more like Popper, mm-hmm. but he knew he knew what he wanted. He, it's just he wasn't sure how to get there. And between he and Vilmosh, mm-hmm. hopefully, and me with some suggestions, uh, we were able to make a very interesting film. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, the end of the the, the Ulysses coming home. Uh, is a, is a portion, there's a montage late in the film. And when we finished filming the movie, we had a horse trailer with two horses, Warren Oates, the actor and Peter Fonda, the actor director, the cinematographer and the assistant and the wardrobe costume designer, Dick Bruno, who became a big costume designer and me. And we went all over New Mexico to sunrises and sunsets and sand dunes. I mean, it was phenomenal. It's That was really, you know, um, young filmmakers getting to do what we wanted. And it's a very interesting uh, montage if you ever see the film.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've, I've seen it and oh, I think it's- So you know the montage I'm talking about. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh... That's
1: in Peter's mind, he was Ulysses coming home. Mm-hmm.
0: It is a beautiful-looking film, and um, it's one of the films where you, uh, um, at the beginning of our conversation, you said that uh, films were greenlighted that uh, didn't stand a chance of being made a couple years before that. Um, I was thinking the hired hand is, is exactly a film film like this. I guess that was, of
1: course, because because Easy Rider was such a big hit, mm. the people at the studios went, "Oh, Peter Fonda, he's yeah, this will be the next Easy Rider. We'll we'll make it." You know, people had. I would say that in that era, studio executives still had to look at the bottom line, but if they were going to make 15 movies, 10 of them made um, financial sense. Ah, this movie star, this romantic comedy, or this, you know, famous play or musical. But five of them, those studio heads went with their gut, Mm. and today, there aren't, many studio heads who are even allowed to go with their gut. Everything is so pre-planned and is this what quadrant and how are we going to market it? And let's let's have a focus group first to see whether or not. And honestly, that magic doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by by data. Uh-huh. It happens. I mean, I made a silly movie called Wayne's World, uh, you know, but man, we caught lightning in a bottle. I mean, you just, as, as we did it, when, when Mike came up with, you know, Queen and and rocking his head in the, in, in the car in rehearsal, everybody went, oh my God. And Paramount thought it was just going to be a filler, you know, what they call a, a movie to put on in, in a in a in a week that n- doesn't do any business. Well, the first preview, people were roaring. You couldn't even hear hear the, the dialogue because they were laughing so hard. It's like blazing saddles. Mm-hmm. You know, that's those are studio heads Alan Ladd, you know, at Fox, who said, yeah, I, I believe in this this filmmaker.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And unfortunately that's not happening anymore.
0: Mm. yeah well maybe there'll be another revolution like the new hollywood um at some point i hope so
1: (laughs) i pray well i mean all the films that are nominated and winning this year all the awards they're all basically independents you know even the even the movies from the studios they're from focus or from fox searchlight they're not from you know big warner's big universal big disney you know Mm. Hard times.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. I remember that was, it was 10 years ago when I thought, well, I think I've seen enough comic book movies for a while now. um, And when is that ever going to play out? Mm. And then when I look back, that was 2010. And the whole thing hadn't even started at that point. When you look at the the production slates now. Uh,
1: Well, I mean, just look at the Writers Guild just announced their awards last night. Promising One, Young Woman, which I thought was a phenomenal film, and Borat, two, you know, totally unique original movies made, you know, with the guts of somebody. You know, at least well, Borat really wasn't wasn't hard because every because the first one was such right. a success, they were waiting for him to do a second film. But but promising young woman, totally unique and original and could never have been done before the Me Too movement. Have you seen uh, Promising Young Woman? No, not yet, unfortunately, ah, no. well, Get your, hopefully get yourself a chance to see it because I think it's going to win a lot of awards.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes the movies take a little while until they reach uh, Europe. Right, right. Um, so let's focus a little bit on Chinatown. Um, i heard of it. <laughs> Yeah, little movie talking about independent movies. (laughs) Not quite forgotten yet. (laughs) Um, Now, you worked with Roman Polanski before on Rosemary's Baby as a dialogue coach. And then uh, you were brought in uh, to be as assistant director on uh, Chinatown. So how did you experience him as a director? What kind of director was he?
1: There are directors who are Brilliant with actors, and there are directors who are brilliant with camera movement or stuff. I found Roman to be the most interesting director I ever got to work with. I, he knew, again, preparation. He knew exactly. He saw his movie before in when they when he was arguing with Bob Town during the writing. <laughs> of the screenplay. He saw the movie. Um, I loved working with Roman uh, and I wish I could have worked with him again. Uh, Never got the chance, although we talk every once in a while. Uh, But uh, he had a vision more than anybody I ever saw. And I think because of his upbringing at the Polish film school, he knew how to do everything. And he had a mind that that figured things out. Like it's in my book, but you know the the cutting of of Jack Nicholson's uh, nose in Chinatown. He wanted to be on Jack. He wanted to see the knife go in into the nose, and he wanted to see it pull up and blood spurt out. And Our special effects guys, our makeup guys, nobody can figure out how to do it. And Roman, and and I can just visualize it. Okay, guys, okay, this is what we do. We have a hinge. We have a hinge on the end of the knife. And when you pull up, it hinges and snaps right back and nobody's gonna see it hinge. And then we put a little, a little, thing with a with a squeegee and so as i pull the knife up my hand will absolutely squeegee the through the through the little hose into the you know and the blood will squirt out and everybody's looking okay we'll try it take one is in the movie it was so brilliant and jack was scared stiff (laughs) because roman in those days we didn't have video playback so And Roman's acting, so he can't really be concentrating on the whole of the scene. But me and Johnny Alonzo and and our script supervisor, you know, whatever, we all said, Wow, look great, Roman. He said, Why you just do it again? And Roman Jack would go, All right, uh, Roman, easy. But he did like 12 takes. And Jack finally said, Enough, you got it, you got it. But it was take one that's in the movie. But Roman was absolutely uh, he was the best. I remember during uh, our tech scout, he would literally put his, his arm on my shoulder and he'd be the camera. Okay. You're Jack. You're Jake Giddies. And we're going to be here and we're going to be there. So the cameraman and the grip and the electric, everybody knew exactly what it was going to be. The, the shot of the um, looking in the rear view mirror. When the car pulls up at Point Furman, well, he said, get me a giant mirror. And we put it on the side of the car. Nobody's going to know it's not just a little side because you don't see the rest of the car. And so it was it was an easy shoot because he knew to put a big, a big like, you know, your, your outside mirror on your car. We had a big one. Just put the camera there and we were able to to see the, the other car pull up and do everything. That, that kind of mind was Roman. And then as far as actors go, he knew exactly where he wanted the actors and what he wanted them to do. Um, and he wasn't a lot, he wasn't someone who had a lot of discussion with actors. He knew what he wanted them to do. They're there to do what he wants them to do. <laughs> There was a, there's a moment, if I'm talking too much, you stop me. No, no, please go moment, ahead. In the backyard of the Mulray house, and we're about to do a scene with Jack, and Jack gets in front of the camera, and Roman goes, okay, Jack, now move your head. No, like this, a little bit here. Yeah, like that. And, oh, it looks great in the camera. And, he, and Jack's going, Roman, this is very uncomfortable. No, no, Jack, it looks great in the camera, it looks great, I'll roll the camera, roll the camera. Oh, okay, okay, action. Hi, I'm Jack Nicholson and I'm very uncomfortable. Oh, geez, Jack, come on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess having that kind of vision for your movie pays off um, in, in, in a way that it um, it feels like everything is in the right place. And that's certainly you, the the impression that you get not just from Chinatown, but from most of, of Polanski's movies. Oh, um,
1: yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Repulsion and cul-de-sac and knife in the water, you know, this as, as a young, as a young filmmaker, blown away by them. Eh. And Rosemary's, I mean, you know, Rosemary's was, uh, he was a young guy coming over who didn't like pressure <laughs> and boy was he pressured, <laughs> pressured by the studio because he was taking too long, pressured because, Sinatra wanted me a Pharaoh on, on his movie and pressure because he knew what he wanted and he had a wonderful cinematographer, my dear long lost friend, Billy Fraker. But Roman knew how he wanted to light it. He didn't want anybody else lighting it, you know? So it took a lot longer, which was why when we made Chinatown, I said to Bob Evans, let's give Roman more time uh-huh. than he actually needs. And Bob said, "Why?" I said, "Because Roman do- does better when he's not under pressure." And it's in his book. I think he talks about the fact that it's the only movie he came he came he came in under under schedule <laughs> because we had given him a longer schedule than he needed.
0: Yeah, speaking of cinematographers, you also talk about that in your book um, that uh, Chinatown was originally um, like he started out shooting with Stanley Cortez, and then he was. Um, he was let go, and John Alonzo was brought in. Um, so, how did that affect the, the the shooting of the film?
1: Well, the first two weeks went very slow because Stanley was very slow, and and Stanley it was really old fashioned. I mean, this was not by this is 1973 when we started filming, and you know there were rails, and you could put a you could put a, a camera on a on a rail, on a railroad dolly. Uh, out in you know we're out in uh, we're out in the woods in the uh, in the orange groves and he wanted to build a dance floor, well to build a dance floor on uneven ground took you know two hours, whereas if you put rails it would take fifteen minutes, and we tried to talk him out of it, and he just was he j- you know Roman hired Stanley Cortez because of the Magnificent Ambersons and all these great old movies. But Stanley was still; f- the technology had moved on from Stanley, mm. and so you know we we decided you know we can't do it anymore, and that's why we went to Johnny, and Alonzo knew all the all the new technology, and was as excited as I was to work with Roman, and you know he would collaborate with Roman, and what do you want and. He and Roman came up with the visuals that are the movie you saw today. And I must say, Dick Silver, our production designer. You know, one of the greats, one of the greats.
0: Now on your website, you have um, a little clip where you talk about um, disagreeing with Roman Polanski. I think it's in one of the uh, little videos where you talk about trusting your instinct. Um, So what do you remember about uh, discussions with um, how to
1: approach something? As an assistant director, you're supposed to follow what the director wants. That's, you are supporting the director in everything. But me, even though that was my job, I didn't feel like I was an automaton, a robot, you know? And so with Roman, because I knew English so well and I knew America so well, when Roman had an idea of something, that was going, you know, 180 degrees the wrong way. I knew how to gently say to Roman, you know, if we do it this way, it will. Oh, Howie has a good idea. Howie has a good idea. You know, we go this way, and that—that that was. He would listen to people. He, as much as of a dictator as he was, he also was open to smart ideas uh he didn't and not just roman but most filmmakers that i work with don't suffer fools very well Uh including me i'm not very good at that that's something that i've had to over the years take a deep breath and get through instead of just saying you know let's get rid of this person you know find a way to maybe help them as opposed to just Guy does. Guy or girl doesn't know what they're doing. Um, so anyway,
0: yeah. I don't know
1: if I answered the question, but
0: yeah, I yeah. saw you
1: smiling and laughing, so I'm sure we had. It was a good time. I do a lot of Roman stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, you do a good Roman Polanski impression.
1: <laughs> I worked with him enough. I was around him enough.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, not, not as good as I uh, do Bob Evans though. Ah, uh, yeah, I do about that. <laughs> oh, Robert. Hello, oh, Robert. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Can you do Warren Beatty, too?
1: Why? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> There's a great... Uh, The one woman that Warren could not, had his number, let's just say, was Julie Christie. Julie Christie had Warren's number. And we're doing a scene in the film Heaven Can Wait, which hopefully you've seen, uh, where Julie's character is going away from the big house. And uh, Leo Farnsworth, Warren Beatty, who's Joe Pendleton originally, goes to her and says listen you know if you ever come across someone again maybe even a quarterback you know give that person a chance and he gives her a kiss goodbye Uh well in the first rehearsal he kind of went like that and Julie said well Warren is that how you're going to kiss me I mean you're supposed to be in love with me that are you kissing me Well, no, Julie, it's just a rehearsal. Well, okay, I just want to know what you want to do, you know. So the first take, he gives her this giant kiss. And Julie says, "Well, don't try and fuck me. Just give me a kiss. (laughs) Julie had Warren's number. One of the few people who did. (laughs) I see. (laughs) It's a good story.
0: Yeah, that's true. Well, back to Chinatown for a moment. Um, Why do you think that Chinatown has this this lasting appeal? Why are we still talking about Chinatown? I I think the legend of the movie has almost become bigger over the years. Um, With each passing year, Chinatown has become more of a legendary movie and a classic than the year before that. Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, maybe because of its theme, maybe because we use the terminology, Jake, it's Chinatown. It's, you know, you, we can't, there's nothing you can do. It's out of your hands. Um, there's a really good book that came out last year called The Big Goodbye by oh. Sam Wasson, which if you're, oh, there you go. <laughs> I <Okay>. have it. <laughs> yeah i'm all through that book but sam you know really took you know there's also there's robert evans is this legend roman polanski a legend jack nicholson definitely a legend and robert town a legend so you've got four legends that all came together and how this movie came together caught, again, caught lightning in a bottle, but it was all about an era that, again, this harkened back to all the film noir that all of us loved and still love. I don't know if we have a, a channel here called TCM, Turner Classic Movies, where they show so many movies from the 30s and 40s and early 50s, all this film noir. And Chinatown is like the gold standard of those kinds of films. And uh, it's one of the, I mean, you know, people always say to I me, mean, what are your favorite films? Casablanca, Chinatown, Godfather One, Godfather 2
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know how you top those four. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, as far as comedies, I gotta go with Young Frankenstein. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> And Dr. Strangelove, sorry
0: Yeah <laughs> You can't fight in but, but, here, this is the war room, and put the candle back, two of the most brilliant scenes in American movies. the Kindle back.
1: <laughs> but I don't know if I answered your Chinatown story, but it just, there's a, it is one of the greats. Mm. And, you know, we still talk about it happened one night, Mm-hmm. We still talk about Citizen Kane. We still talk about Godfather 1 and 2. Doctor Strange, I mean, the ones, Casablanca, they're all there. You know? The Graduate. Yeah. You know, the Graduate certainly for its... It, Chinatown also holds up because it's period. Mm-hmm. A, a movie made in a modern era of 1977 doesn't hold up as well Mm. because it's not period. You know what I mean? Yeah.
0: And it's interesting that so many of the New Hollywood uh, uh, pictures are indeed period uh, pieces, not just Chinatown, but Bonnie and Clyde and uh, Boxcar Bertha, um, or The the Last Picture Show, uh, Paper Moon. So many of those movies play in a different era, and they sort of pick up genres that were popular a long time ago like the film noir.
1: I did a movie called Peggy Sue Got Married <laughs> yeah <laughs> marketing back to 1960 to all those people who loved it but yeah no uh I think you're able to get away with stuff in a period film a year because you're able to research it and really look at what was happening at that time whereas today you know if you try and make a movie today well are you going to be wearing a mask <laughs> you know or yeah everything is happening so rapidly today that you might be making you a, a movie that you think of as today but it it comes out nine months from now and it's already old hat
0: yeah and i guess it also underscores the like the timelessness of the issues that people are talking about it's like chinatown the corruption um, that is, um, at the basis of the story, the, the criminal history of Los Angeles, so to speak. Sam Watson, I think, does a great job connecting those two.
1: Um, yes. Yeah, uh, and by the way, I don't want to say Los Angeles, but there's still so many people are corrupt mm. today that and I, I always talk about there aren't seven deadly sins, there's one Greed, eh. and greed portends to all the other deadly sins. Greed's a horrible thing, horrible thing. Eh. And there's so much hate in the world today. Even the smallest things, people are angry. You know that. Why can't we all just get along? You know, imagine <laughs> John Lennon. Yeah. You know, it's gotten so much worse, and. There are so many more people who are haters that, in order to defend yourself from the haters, people who shouldn't be hating start to hate.
0: Mm. Yeah, because it gets so people are so upset that, and, and I think everybody is so uptight about stuff that you have to react in such a uh, such an over-the-top manner to everything that it just ends up in yelling um, very very quickly. I know. Let's talk about your book, um, Magic Time. Um, A very, very enjoyable read. I loved it. Um, I love uh, hearing Hollywood stories, obviously, but what I also loved is the personal side of it, the whole father-son relationship that you talk about and which I think I could relate to very well. And um, I I was wondering when you wrote the book, was it difficult for you to open up like this? Because you're very
1: vulnerable um, in those pages. Yeah, um, it was. But I think that the fact that I changed my name at 50 and was able to open up and become vulnerable enough to meet my wife, who I've been with for 25 years, who is a Jungian analyst, to shrink, I was able to open up as a human being and become much more awake and aware. Uh, as a human being and when I got bar mitzvah at 50. Uh, and I had always, my father had always told stories and we had always said, gee, dad, why don't you write them down? And he never did. And I had my own stories. And every on every movie I was ever on, I'd tell some of those movie stories. And everybody said, will you please write them down? We don't wanna lose these stories, they're great. And I always found, I said, but there's gotta be something else for a book, otherwise it's just a bunch of stories that, so what? And because I changed my name, Molly really said, maybe we can go there. And because I have such trust and faith in my wife who helped me write the book, I was able to say the things that I had always felt. And she drew, being a shrink, she really drew it out of me and asked me questions that I had to really look at. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very proud of this book uh, and uh, because I, I wanted it for my kids and my grandchildren uh, and people in the business who know me or don't know me. Um, but I have found interesting a lot of people who had father-son, mother-daughter, mother-son, father-daughter issues also were helped by the book uh, because, you know, I was able to, to really look at it. And, and look at what I had to do to make my changes. So uh, I've got a lot of kudos from actually opening up because most people are afraid to open up. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, one of my tenets is don't be afraid, have courage. Have courage to eat Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I mean, you know, but... You know, people are afraid, oh, I don't want to do this, or oh, I don't want to do that. If you have courage to, of what you believe, uh, and do it with consideration and integrity, go out and do what you want to do, because, you know, unfortunately, the old adage, life is short, really is. I'm 75. I, As you can probably tell, I've got the energy of a 30-year-old. And that's the way I'm going to live the rest of my life, and I have no idea how much longer it's going to be. But uh, there's a part of the book which uh, you read about what I had to do on Marathon Man with three Academy Award winners that I actually, you know, stood up to them at 29 years old, and I didn't know I had courage, but I just knew, damn it, this is the way we should do it, you know, and it worked. And I thought, oh. I can say what I believe. And if I tell it, if I tell the truth, don't lie, tell the truth and have it come from it, your experience, your knowledge, people get, they get disarmed Mm -hmm. because they know inside that maybe they weren't telling the truth or maybe they weren't really looking at what the truth is. And so that's, not, you know, knock on wood, that's how I've lived my life and continue to. And the other thing is showing up. Uh A lot of people, oh, I don't want to go to this dinner. Oh, I don't want to go here. Oh, it's too cold outside. Oh, I get a, I get an email from some guy in Austria, Christian something. And he wants to talk to me. Oh, I don't want to talk. Why should I talk? No, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting a, a, a person who's read my book and after this podcast, hopefully you and I can talk about lots of things mm-hmm. in our lives. And if you ever come to America or if I ever come to Europe, I'm going to come look you up, mm-hmm. you yes, know, there, please. there's something good, something good's coming out of this. Yeah. And hopefully some of your, some of your listeners will say, wow, you know, what he's talking about makes sense. Mm-hmm. One of my other tenants that I'll talk about is have fun. As you can see, I'm having fun. You're having fun in this podcast. we yeah. are laughing. You're having a good time. Boy, if you're not having fun, find something else to do. <laughs> yeah. It really goes by way too fast.
0: Yeah. I think that's one of the things that makes the book so special that um, there are different types of Hollywood memoirs. And there's the... Well, you know the genre of tell-all memoir, where you always where you hear that who was drunk and who was a jerk and who screwed over whom. And your book is so positive. Your book is, um, you know, such an adventure in a way um, of somebody who loves movies and gets to be part of them and meet all these fantastic people. Um, so that is, I, I, I think, I love the positive attitude of it. And yet, you're honest enough to say, well. Um, Something was missing. Something was. I was still on that journey of self-discovery. I was uh, still trying to figure out a couple of things, and it took me a while. Also, the fact that you uh, that it took you until you were fifty, until you had certain things figured out. I think that honesty, um, like you said, that makes it more than just a Hollywood memoir. Yeah.
1: Well, and I'm still learning. I mean, I think again, I'm I'm still curious, and I'm still learning at seventy-five. And so I think that uh, people who wall off, they, they're not gonna allow themselves to be vulnerable. Well, if you're not gonna be vulnerable, you may not go low, but you're certainly not gonna have the highs mm. that you can have by, by enjoying, you know? <laughs> um, have you seen Another Round, the, uh, the Danish film? No. It's uh, up for best. Interesting movie. Another round, it's called. It's uh, uh, Thomas Vinterberg directed Mm,
0: Okay, yeah, I read about it. But again, I haven't seen it yet.
1: Yeah. Interesting film just about trying to let go and how letting go sometimes can get a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But if you do, I I just keep going. Be considerate of somebody else. Don't don't be an asshole. Mm. You know, but man, this is how I feel. You know, love me or hate me, but this is how I feel. Oh, okay, so then they know where you're at. Mm -hmm. Then they can make their decision and you can make your decision. You know, I think it was Walt Whitman who said, if you make one friend in your life, you know, one, that's amazing.